Um, today, uh, I've entitled the session Christianity Explored, uh, kind of the last, the last part of the Alpha course, looking at what will it actually be, what does it look like to become a Christian? What does it look like, more accurately, should I say, uh, to follow Christ? And uh, then we'll have the usual chance to discuss and have you know, questions and on your tables. But as you'll see, I'm not interviewing anyone tonight because that, uh, some of the questions are going to be directed at the table leaders. So you guests are going to ask your table leaders questions about what it is to be a Christian, what it is to follow Christ. So instead of having someone share their story of being a Christian now, I think you can all do that. And hopefully the, I'll be a bit shorter and there'll be no testimony, so there'll be more time uh, for, um, you know, for you to ask questions there. And then also right at the end of the evening, I'm just going to give a chance, if anyone would like you know, to become a Christian or to you know, at least look into it further, there'll be a chance to stay around and chat and talk and pray uh, as well. So that will happen at the end of the evening. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Now, to go out with someone is always uh, one of the biggest decisions you can ever make. Now, Matt Hatch, who is pastor of Mosaic Church, um, admitted to me once that whenever he was once thinking about going out with a girl, he'd do like a cost-benefit analysis of the situation. <laughs> and uh, Mosaic Church is in very good hands, you're, need, you're glad to hear. And Pip obviously did very well. But anyway, and so he would say, you know, I want to really check out, what am I getting myself in for? Is this worth it. And so he'd actually sit down with a bit of paper and, and rate it. So he'd say, like, looks, 7 out of 10. <laughs> Hobbies, 5 out of 10. And if they weren't an Arsenal supporter, he tells me they had no chance. Compatibility, 8 out of 10. Humour, 6 out of 10. And then I added in ability to laugh at my terrible jokes, 9 out of 10, because obviously that's crucial for Matt. Um, so you, can, you get the idea there. He's going, what am I letting myself in for? Let me do a cost-benefit analysis of what it is to go out with this person. I wonder what you would make of the cost-benefit analysis of becoming a Christian. What do you think you gain from becoming a Christian? How would you rate it? And over the last few weeks, we've looked at some of the benefits, haven't we? But I said, uh, this has been the last two or three talks. Oops. I said, um, past, you get forgiveness of sin. Jesus died in your place to forgive your sin. So there's no guilt from the past. Whatever you've done, forgiven. Jesus takes it on the cross. It's complete forgiveness, a completely fresh start. Your conscience is clean. <gasps> wow, that's a great benefit. Present, we have a new life. You have a new start and with the new power of the Holy Spirit to live uh, in you. So you have new power to live by. It's a great benefit, a new life, a new start, a new power. You have comfort in times of trouble because you know that the God you worship is the God that also suffered. So when you have tough times, you have a comforter and you have the Holy Spirit and then purpose in life. To know and serve your Creator, you have a reason to get up every single day. Because no matter what the day holds, you've still got the same Creator to serve and to worship. No matter how mundane it seems, to Him He says, give your best for me today. Ah, what a purpose. These are some of the benefits. And then the future, hope of eternity without fear of judgment. I mean, what a benefit that is. The cross, He died to take your sin. The grave was unopened. The stone was unopened three days later. Hope of an eternity. Jesus, as we looked at, is the, the first fruits of all that's to come. He's the example of all that's to come. So they're the benefits. You think, well, it's great, isn't it? But interestingly, when Jesus starts to talk about what it is to follow him, what it is to become a Christian, it doesn't look that great at all. In fact, he's so clear, it's, it's so startling, it's almost he's pointing out the negatives. And we're going to have a look at this part, uh, a, a chapter in Mark's Gospel. You could say it's the central chapter to the whole of Mark's Gospel, because it kind of explains all the themes we've been looking at so far. Um, and it's Mark um, 
chapter 8, verses uh, 22 to 38. Now, I'm going to have it on the screen again. But again, I recommend if you haven't taken one, home, one of these home over this, the last six weeks, take there's still some left, take it home, have a read of it, and particularly check out this passage uh, later as well. Now, I like Peter. Remember, Peter, Mark is Peter's scribe. Uh, so he's writing uh, kind of about Peter's account of Jesus and his life. And um, I like Peter because as you read the Gospels, you realise he always puts his foot in it. And uh, that kind of, kind of resonates with me. And uh, just a quick story, and some of you might have heard this, but my famous one, I'll do it really quickly, was that I was in Ecuador, and I'd just gone out for this year out there, and I was just learning my Spanish. And I was with this friend, Paul, and we didn't speak much Spanish, but we were kind of two months in. And I thought, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm pretty good at Spanish. So uh, he was in hospital, and uh, he had this one of these bugs, you know, us Westerners have these fragile stomachs, we go over there and we get ill in a second. So he was ill, and I was on to take him in overnight. I said, you know what, Paul, don't worry. I'm a good lad, I'll stay with you overnight. I'll be your mate, you know, I'll, I'll get a bed next year. So I go, I go up to this, you know, little pretty receptionist, Ecuadorian lady, I say, disculpe, mi amigo está enfermo, quiero dormir contigo. And she looks at me really bizarrely. And then I realise, oh, you've got the formal tense, you know, you don't have this informal, you, 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 she's a senior. So I said, I better say it in the formal tense, and if I say it a bit slower, she might understand. And being English, I said it a bit louder. Disculpe, mi amigo está enfermo, quiero dormir consigo. Oh, you got it. <laughs> Excuse me, my friend is really ill and I'd love to sleep with you tonight. Excuse me, I'm my friend is really ill and you, I really would love to sleep with you tonight. Put your foot in it. Peter is that guy. He spoke before he thought. He would jump in feet first without considering the consequences. He was the one that tried to walk on water and then lacked faith and fell in. He was the one that chopped the guard's ear off at the crucifixion, and Jesus said, my kingdom is not of arms. He was the one that most famously denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. He was a guy that always put his foot in it. However, he was also the first disciple to be the leader and the spokesperson amongst the other twelve. And when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he was the one that started to lead the early church. So Peter is quite a character. So let's pick the story up. Here, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Now what strikes me about this straight away is it takes two touches from Jesus, doesn't it? And if you read everywhere else in the Gospels, and even if you read two chapters later in Mark chapter 10, often blind people are healed just by his word. He says, go, your faith has healed you and the eyes open. Here, he does this really odd ritual, rather disgusting ritual, spitting and putting it on the guy's eyes, he says, do you see? And he says, only like trees. And then he touches again, and he gets it. And so you're asking the question, why the two touches? Jesus, why the two touches? We've seen already you've got power and authority over all sickness. You've said before, you're, let your sight come back, and you, your word it's come back. Why two touches? But then not only that, did you notice what it says there? Jesus said to him, sent him home saying, don't go into the village. And the original Greek has the sense of don't go in the village and tell anyone. What a fascinating thing. Why does Jesus, this guy has just been blind for however many years, he's just got his sight back. 
He's got this newfound joy and freedom. Can he go and tell his family? Can he go and tell his village? Can he go and tell his friends? No, don't go and tell anyone about this. It's, just, it's bizarre because for Jesus, it's free publicity. If this guy goes off on the loose, everyone, Jesus, heal my eyes. This guy really is who he says he is. And this is not the first time. If you've read Mark's Gospel, you might have noticed. In chapter 144, he heals a man with leprosy and then says, see that you don't go and tell this to anyone. In chapter 543, after he just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. So the story leaves us puzzling at two points. First of all, why does Jesus have to touch the man twice to heal him? And second of all, why was the man not allowed to tell anyone? And we'll come back to those. But now we come to the pivotal point of Mark's Gospel, and the whole Gospel turns on this. Mark's Gospel is structured in such a way, and it turns on this. Let's carry on. So the next few verses. Jesus' disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about this. So Jesus is walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi and he's got crowds everywhere. And uh, you can imagine Jesus at this stage is just a huge hit, isn't he? The religious leaders don't like him, but the crowds love him. And so he says to his disciples, he says, well, who who do do these people, who who do they say I am? Some say John the Baptist, a good moral teacher. Others say Elijah, you know, a revolutionary, a hero of old, this great hero of the Old Testament, Elijah. Some just say one of the prophets, you know, just some ancient figure of history that's fairly important. They all have different opinions, but none of them are adequate. And then verse 29 and 30 is one of those moments that Peter will remember for the rest of his life. It's a bit like the day Leanne came walking down the aisle to me. I better not look at her because I might cry. But... It's, it's a day I'll, I'll never forget. I turned around and there she was and my bride-to-be. And I was like, wow, I'll never forget that look, that first look. Interestingly, Jesus says that, not to tell anyone about him again. <coughs> oh dear, I don't know what's going on here, sorry. I missed out some slides. <coughs> Je- <coughs> Excuse me, Jesus says, oh no, here I am. There we go. I've got you all with me as well, haven't I? What about you, he asked. Who do you say? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. So all the crowds are going, who is he? Who is he? Jesus turns to Peter and looks him in the eye and says, who am I, Peter? Who do you personally say I am? And Peter, the guy who was bound to get it all wrong, he always put his foot in it, he always spoke before he thought. He hits the nail on the head and he says, you are the Christ. You're the guy that we have been waiting for. You're the great king. You're the great rescuer and ruler that the Old Testament promised. You're the one that's going to deliver us from our enemies. You are the anointed one. Remember, Christ means anointed. You're the king. You're the anointed one. And then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. So we still have these two questions. Why did Jesus have to touch the man twice? And why again do we see that he's not allowed to tell anyone? Well, let's read on. Verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's a way of referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
And after three days rise again, the Son of Man is this great uh, prophetic vision from Daniel 7 of a, of a Christ-like figure who would come and rule. He says, the Son of Man, I, I, I must suffer many things. This, do you notice, was the first time Jesus then began. This is the first mention of his death. He then began to tell it. This is the first time the disciples got wind that their leader, their Christ, which Peter has so brilliantly just got, is about to die. And Peter's on this massive high, and this is the classic hero to zero moment. You know when you're on a high and you think whatever you say is going to be going great because you've had a good morning or something? This is the classic moment. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you're the Christ, you won't suffer and die, we'll get an army together and we'll take on these Romans and we'll kick them out. You're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the king, you're the Messiah, you're the deliverer, you're the rescuer. Jesus, what is this rubbish, this pathetic story of someone dying? The Son of Man does not die, the Son of Man rules. What is this talk of you dying? You're not going to be killed. But Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter's emotions are running high. He's just hit the nail on his head in front of his best 11 mates. You're the Christ. And then he gets bang, right down again to the bottom. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, what strong language. He attributes what Peter has just said to the work of of the devil. Why such strong language? Well, the reason Jesus had come to earth was to suffer and die. That was his mission. Do you remember, if he did it, by his suffering and death restored our relationship with God. If Jesus doesn't suffer and die on a cross, <coughs> mankind is left in a devastating position of being separated from God. So when Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to die. You're the Christ, you're the king, you're this great ruler. He says, get behind me, Satan. The only way I'm going to be crowned king is by dying on a cross. That's the way I'm crowned king. If I'm tempted to take the easy way out, then the rescue operation was a failure. Mankind will never have a relationship with God. So now we can answer those two questions. Why did Jesus have to touch the man twice to heal him? And why was the man not allowed to tell anyone? Because Peter, not to mention the crowds and the other disciples, were only halfway there in their understanding of Jesus. The blind man was like an analogy of where the disciples were at. They could only see Jesus partially. They only had half the picture. Peter had understood that he was the king, he was the Christ, but he only had a partial sight. He didn't understand that this Christ, this king, would suffer and die. He understood Daniel 7, which promised a great ruler and rescuer, but he had not understood that the same promised rescuing ruler was also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who would be disfigured, despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering. You see, Jesus has said, don't go and tell anyone who I am, because you don't fully understand who I am, and people will get the wrong understanding if you just go and say, I've seen the miracle maker. I'm not just a miracle maker. I'm far more than a miracle maker. I'm not going to meet your political and military expectations of a Messiah. I'm not that type of king. I'm not going to conquer the world by force. I'm going to conquer the world through my death. 
I'm a suffering servant. And Peter was partially blind. He'd seen Jesus like, like, like men walking around, they look like trees. He'd seen Jesus as the Christ, but never as his suffering servant. He didn't realise that to be crowned king, he would have to suffer. He needs another touch. He needs another touch. And interesting, that's where the next part of Mark's Gospel goes. The whole of Mark's Gospel is structured. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the end. The good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his aim. We looked at that in week 1. Chapters 1 to 8, we have 22 miracles showing him to be the Christ. Dramatic stuff. People raised from the dead, blind people seeing, lame people walking, deaf people hearing. This is the Christ. This is our ruler. Then we get Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And then we get two miracles from chapters 9 to 16 because we find out that the Son of God must suffer and die. The miracles disappear in the second half of Mark's Gospel and you get three predictions of his death and you get story after story talking about what it is to follow him and it's not glamorous and it's not pretty. It's following the suffering servant. I find it amazing how Mark structures his Gospel. The path leads very quickly to the cross, the road narrows and the crowds slip away. The crowds aren't interested anymore if he's not some miracle maker. The king must suffer and die. And if you want to follow him, if you want to be a Christian, then you must do the same thing. The message suddenly isn't as attractive anymore. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't put it in small print at the end. He puts it for everyone to see. Look what happens next verse. Then he called the crowd to him, along with disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I tell you what, it doesn't look that attractive. Just notice a few things. First of all, it's for everyone. He called the crowd to him along with his... He says, well, I want everyone to hear this. I'm not going to say this just for a few. I want people to know exactly who I am and what I'm about. You cannot miss this if you want to follow me. He calls everyone to him. This is for everyone. What's the first thing he says? Deny yourself. You must deny yourself. That doesn't mean you deny something. That means you have a complete reorientation in your life. Instead of putting yourself first, you put God first. The word repentance literally means I'm going in this direction, I'm living for myself, and God calls me, Jesus calls me, and I turn around, and I go the other way, because I've had a complete reorientation, And suddenly, my agenda doesn't come first. His agenda comes first. Imagine it like this. Each of us has lots of different things that we value, that are important in our lives. Our job, our family, our marriage, our hobbies, our friends, our money, or whatever, our houses. When Jesus says, deny yourself, he says, all those things can be great. What comes first? What comes first? That is what it means to deny yourself. He says, I'm not going to put my agenda first, my things first, I'm going to put God first. The call of Jesus is to deny yourself. It means to put God first. If you had a throne, and you had a picture of all the things that you were in your life, and you had a throne in the middle, because you put the most important thing on the throne, he says, if you're there, if your family's there, if your money's there, if your hobby's there, if all these great things are there, you're not denying yourself. They have to come second to following me. And then they're actually put into proper perspective, interestingly enough. God has to be on that throne. Secondly, he says, it doesn't get any easier, 
we must take up our cross, which literally means we must be willing to suffer. This doesn't mean some irritation in life. This doesn't mean it's going to be hard from time to time. It means that following your master is the way of the cross. You follow him to the cross. The picture here is of a man already condemned to die who's carrying his cross, which is what Jesus later did. Jesus is saying, suffering, potentially death, awaits you if you follow me. That is your destiny, because people won't necessarily like you if you're a Christian. It might mean people don't like you. It probably will. And I'll tell you what, to Mark's readers, during the persecution of Nero, that was good news. Oh, we're on the right lines. Because they were being slaughtered left, right and centre. The Christians in China today are being slaughtered left, right and centre. He says people might kill you for being a Christian. You have to be willing to suffer. So this is what Jesus expects of everyone who wants to follow him. It's not attractive, it's not pretty, it's not put in small print. It's there, he calls the crowd and his disciples and said, you must deny yourself, you must put God first, and you must take up your cross, you must be willing to suffer. So the question is, why would anyone want to do it? Why would anyone want to do it? What's the motivation? And that's what he goes on to talk about now. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel, the good news that Mark is talking about, will save it. If you want to save your physical life, if you want to put other things on the throne, if you want to put yourself first and not God first, if you want to live for yourself, if it's all me, 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 now, 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 and not God first, if your own desires, if self-preservation comes first, you'll lose your real life because you'll never know God. And you'll be separated from him, now and for eternity. Whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to live for himself now, will lose it. But if you deny yourself, for me and for this good news, actually, you'll gain an inheritance that will last forever. Motivation number one, Jesus says, think eternally. Why would anyone be willing to suffer and go through the hardship of following Jesus? Because they're thinking about eternity. We know this world is fleeting. We know we're here today and gone tomorrow. We know that death will come knocking on our door and we have no idea when that day is going to be. Jesus says, for goodness sake, think eternally when you think about following me. Jesus carries on with a second motivation. He asks possibly the greatest question posed at any time in the history of the world, in my opinion. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What good is it to have absolutely everything? What good is it to be David Beckham and yet lose an eternity because you don't know God? And then what can man give in exchange for his soul? What is, as, if you had your, a human life, a human soul, and you put it on a weighing scale, what could you put on the other side of that weighing scale to balance it? What is as valuable as human life? When you're talking about putting God on the throne, it says... All these things that you might put on the throne, they're not as valuable as your very life. Jesus is saying, first of all, think eternally. Second of all, weigh it up. Why should I bother denying myself and putting God first? Why should I bother taking up my cross and being willing to suffer? Think eternally. You don't want to lose your real life. If you try to save it, you'll lose it. And secondly, weigh it up. What's more important, this life or the next? Material possessions or the soul? Your decisions now affect your eternity. Weigh it up. 
Take yourself out of the situation and think objectively. Don't lose your life. Don't put yourself at the centre of the world as if everything should revolve around you. Put God, put the Creator, put the good news at the centre and let everything revolve around Him because that's how the world was made. And I hope you're enjoying the singing in the background. And if you're just in any doubt, he has a final motivation. He says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The final motivation is there is a day of judgment. And if you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. And you'll hear those God-forsaken words, which were, I never knew you. Depart from me. If you deny me and put me first, if, if you accept suffering, if you think eternally, if you weigh it up, if you lose your life, if you put me first, if you're not ashamed of me, then it's an eternity. But if all that's a no, then the consequences are devastating. Jim Elliot was a Christian martyr in Ecuador in 1950. He got speared by the native tribes people and died. At the age of 22, he caught the spirit of Jesus' words here when he wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says, If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and put God first. You must take up your cross. You must be willing to suffer. Why should you bother? Well, think eternally. Weigh it out. What's more valuable than your soul? And there will be a day of judgment. So Jesus doesn't really beat around the bush, as you'll notice if you read it. He gets right. He says, I want you to know, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be tough. But the motivation is there to do it. And I want to end with a final thing. and say, this is all a question of, is this true? Is this true? Do you, if you think it's true, you've got to what's called count the cost. If you know here tonight, you either... You come on this course and you didn't know anything about Jesus or you're, 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 you've come back as a Christian who had a Christian background or whatever and you know, like Peter knew, you are the Christ and actually you did have to suffer and die. Jesus says, this is what you have to do. You have to count the cost. You have to be willing to put me first and you have to be willing to suffer. And until you can say that, you cannot follow me. It's just as clear as that. But the motivation is there for you. But here's the other thing. There are the benefits. This is if it's true, but it does also work. I want to remind us, these things are all true. It's interesting hearing Scott the other week, you know, the rugby player who gave his testimony, he played for Leeds Carnegie, played for the biggest team in South Africa. He said, you know, he had everything, he had all he could want in this world. And he said, I cannot tell you the joy of knowing forgiveness. That was his, that was his testimony. I, to be forgiven by God was greater than anything this world could offer. So there it is. That's Peter's story. He got the identity of Jesus. He didn't get the mission and therefore he didn't get the call. And only at the end of Mark's Gospel do you see that he gets it because Jesus eventually, uh, Peter eventually, we learn, tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down for his faith. The moment that he was going to be killed for his faith the tradition that the historians tell us, he said, I don't want to go the same way as my Lord. Can you crucify me upside down? And he was crucified upside down. He did follow in the footsteps of his master because he knew he was worth it. So hopefully that's given you lots to think about. I'm sure it provoked lots of questions on, on uh, when Jesus first said it. So here are the questions for discussion. For the table leaders, please ask them the nastiest questions. 
What were the implications for you becoming a Christian? How did your views, thoughts, actions and feelings change? Has it been easy? Was it instantaneous? What is the toughest thing about being a Christian? What is the best thing? And then for the guests, what would be the hardest thing for you about, uh, about becoming a Christian? What is stopping you following Christ? What areas in your life come first? Do you think the motivation Jesus gives is worth it? Your eternity and the value of the human soul.